0: Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with episode 256 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again and we are here to break down everything that happened this week across AEW. And NXT. And folks, when it comes to AEW in particular, we have an absolute ton to talk about because not only do we have Dynamite and Rampage as per usual, but there was a special Battle of the Belt show Saturday night on TNT. So we have an extra hour of AEW action to break down on the NXT side of things. It's the normal, you know, episode, of course, on Tuesday night, but it did feature AJ Styles in a heavily promoted main event match against Grayson Waller. So there is going to be plenty to talk about from NXT as well. With all of that said, let's not waste much time. Let's start getting over as we normally do with the Silver King reminding you. It is all about the five here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So please head over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop a five-star rating for us. If you use Apple, also leave a review. Let people know how much you love this show. Tell them why they should listen. And if you leave us a five-star review, as all of you should be, we will read that review on this podcast. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. I know I've been a little bit absent from Twitter recently. The biggest problem is due to my just life and uh, work, a lot of things that have been going on. I've been unable to watch almost every wrestling show live like I normally do. You guys know, anyone who follows us at Getting Overcast, I tweet live during the shows. Haven't really been able to do that over the last two weeks. That should be changing very soon now that the college football season is over. So look forward to those live tweets during the shows back at Getting Overcast, along with episode releases, news items, polls, all that really good stuff. We are on the fast track to the Royal Rumble, AEW Revolution is uh, just about eight weeks away and WWE has also, uh, not announced yet, but it seems almost official like that February show, The Blood Money in the Sand, next edition of that will be coming. So we have three huge pay-per-views in the next three months, ton to talk about here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So as I said, this is of course the AEW and NXT show because there is so much to talk about with AEW, that is how we're going to kick off the show today. If you are someone who listens to the show, doesn't watch AEW, only follows NXT, or you're coming into it late, you wanna jump around, please remember that we have full episode descriptions with timestamps for every episode so you can hop to the certain segment that you wanna listen to. But as always, I hope you guys listen to this entire show. As far as AEW goes, like I said, it's Dynamite, Rampage, and Battle of the Belts, but so many of the storylines on one show interacted with a storyline from the other show. In one case, we had two storylines that completely mixed together here. So I'm not able to do this in order. I'm not able to just go down, Rampage, then Battle of the Belts, then Dynamite. What I did was I combined everything. So we're gonna talk about storylines and and wrestlers, uh, you know, back to front, basically, everything that happened this week. And then we'll kind of give our perspective on what's going on in AEW. The one thing that I did note that was overarching across all three shows, is there wasn't a great variety of wrestlers used. And I know there's a couple people out of action right now, obviously, Kenny Omega, John Moxley, a couple others, Cody Rhodes due to COVID-19. But it really felt like for a company that has such a big roster, we got four hours of wrestling over the last week. And there were only a, a certain number of people actually in matches. You had people with two matches or would be in one match and would make an interference in another one. There was a tag team that got called out by two different sets of people, even though neither of them make sense as a storyline. I just found that all to be very interesting. So we're gonna get through AEW right now. And you know, certainly you guys will have the opportunity uh to tweet me, uh, you know, send some DMs, tell me what you think about it. But it was a little kind of concerning the way these shows were kind of put together. Now there was plenty of great uh throughout AEW this week. A couple things that kind of bothered me as well. Let's get to it with the champion on the show, Hangman Adam Page, the AEW world champion. He was on Dynamite, and you know, I gotta be honest, he cut a pretty boring champion style promo about overcoming Brian Danielson and needing new challengers in 2022. So to my excitement, Dan Lambert answered him. Hangman said uh, the guys, Ethan Page and Scorpio Sky, who weren't even there by the way, they can speak for themselves. He called Lambert a walking Facebook profile, which was a great dig. Uh, Lambert put Page over for earning his title, wrestling great matches, but then he got really scripted talking about Hangman's cowboy gimmick sucking because it disrespects legends before him. And then Lance Archer ran down to grab Lambert, but instead attacked Page, hit a blackout through a standing chair and commentary did its best to sell this as a huge moment. And the crowd, anytime that, you know, there's a surprise person returning, they're going to pop for it as well. But as a viewer at home, seeing Lance Archer run out to attack Page, I didn't buy into it. It just didn't work for me. Now, it's probably because Archer hasn't won a major feud in AEW, despite all the big people he's fought. He's been completely gone for months, not used at all. Jake Roberts was inexplicably not there. Plus the whole Lambert insertion, even if like, let's say Lambert takes over as Archer's manager, first of all, holy crap, if we see more Dan Lambert, that's going to suck but it would also be a really odd pairing and an odd booking. Most of all, though, I really don't have any desire to see Hangman versus Archer. I know the wrestling will be good in the match, but from a storyline standpoint, they're starting the year, they reset the, the records. He's zero and zero. The guy hasn't wrestled in months. So what's the point of this whole thing? There's literally no way that Archer is going to take the title off Page. So it's clearly, blatantly a transitional feud. I guess before they get to Paige's revolution challenger, who right now hasn't really been singled out. I mean, maybe it's like Adam Cole. That could make a little bit of sense. But right now, we're kind of just waiting for someone to start a legitimate program with him. And Archer, for me, is not that. And like I said, Lambert's promo didn't even make much sense. So there's a lot of things that happened in AEW this week that I liked, especially with their big wrestlers. But this one, it just didn't work for me at all. (laughs) Now, also on Dynamite, this was really, for me, the big match on Dynamite. We had CM Punk versus Wardlow. MJF came out with Wardlow, who now has a new nickname. I think it's a new nickname. Maybe I just missed it. Mr. Mayhem just kind of feels unnecessary. The guy's name's Wardlow. It's like a kick-ass name. I don't know why he needs Mr. Mayhem. Uh, It's like Will Hobbs. That was a great name. They made him powerhouse Hobbs. I guess it's equally as good. I don't know that it made it better or worse, right? But Mr. Mayhem Wardlow is apparently his name now. Anyway, Wardlow caught Punk in the corner with a power bomb, then added four more in succession. He stepped on Punk's chest for the easy win, but MJF jumped onto the uh, ring apron and he demanded more hurt more power bombs. Wardlow hit two more. then MJF demanded a power bomb through a table outside. so Wardlow went ahead and did that. Punk somehow, after eating I think six power bombs plus another one through a table, beat a ten count. MJF demanded another power bomb. And then Punk caught Wardlow with a totally predictable small package, very similar to uh, Bret Hart and Diesel from Survivor Series 94 or 95-95, I think it was. Very, very similar type of finish to, to the match. And so CM Punk won. MJF screamed and pushed Wardlow, and it looked like Wardlow was getting ready to snap and attack him until Sean Spears ran in to calm him down. So for this one, I have two separate minds, right? I definitely like the match and the segment. It increased tension between MJF and Wardlow. It also sold how scared MJF is of Punk and honestly of Wardlow too. And Wardlow looked like an, an, an absolute monster in this segment. And that's exactly what you wanted. Punk sold his ass off for him. It was great. At the same time, it was a really weak and obvious way to get out of a match booking that they weren't forced to book. We talk about this with WWE all the time, right? Sometimes you book yourself into a situation where you don't want either guy to win clean or definitively, I guess is the better word. And that's what they did here. They put themselves into a match. They didn't want either guy to win definitively. So they booked a small package finish. We talk about this with WWE, like I said, all the time. What would have been the actual harm to Punk if Wardlow got the win? Wouldn't it have been better for Punk to take the count out loss because then he could still claim, I've never been pinned or submitted. Wardlow has a win over Punk. That's a feather in his cap. You know, the whole point of Punk's first loss is for it to happen to a young guy. So he puts him over. So you do a count out loss to Wardlow. Wardlow gets over. And then eventually down the line, you do a pinfall loss, whether it's to MJF or a Darby Allen or a Jungle Boy, whoever. And then now you have Punk doing two jobs instead of one. Right. And he's putting two different people over. So that's what I would have done. But I enjoyed the storytelling. It just felt like it was very, very, very obvious. So I was waiting for it the entire match. MJF also came out at the end of hour one, screaming on a microphone that Punk wouldn't get away with the shit he did. And he promised that fans will get the match they have been waiting for next week on Dynamite. Finally, Punk versus Sean Spears. And that was really killer. He's so damn good on the mic. You knew it wasn't going to be Punk and MJF. They're clearly now with eight weeks left. Again, somehow, I'm not sure how they're going to drag it out, but they're going to save it for Revolution, it seems like. So Punk-Spears makes total sense. But yeah, I mean, Revolution is the beginning of March at this point. And if he beats Spears, which he should, there's no one left unless they throw FTR in there, right? So that's at least how it looks right now. Uh, Over on Battle of the Belts. So we're moving to Saturday night. Uh, We had Interim TNT Championship. Dustin Rhodes versus Sammy Guevara. And this was created because Cody had COVID-19 and was unable to defend his newly won title against Sammy, uh, who obviously just lost the title to him. So it was, it was scheduled as an immediate rematch. Lambert and Men of the Year all cut promos on Rampage about the match changing. Ethan Page already lost his opportunity. Scorpio Sky has done nothing to earn one. So that made no sense to me. As far as the match goes, Dustin and St- Sammy shook hands after the bell. There were two really weird and slow count out attempts as Sammy like oversold an injured knee that, you know, Dustin put him into the steel steps. And then he pile drove him outside. At one point, Aubrey Edwards didn't even count. She was just like looking out of the ring, just like evaluating the situation. So it was really strange. So then Sammy, who is selling a badly injured knee, he's screaming he's in pain. He does a double springboard cannonball without any problems Uh, It totally missed Dustin. Rhodes avoided a springboard cutter and hit crossroads, and then a code red for a couple near falls. Then Sammy hit his finisher, a GTH again, no problem on the knee, and Dustin kicked out. Fuego de Sol ran down to set up a table. Arn Anderson then mimed pulling out a Glock, which just... (sighs) They're really going with that. Then Dustin hit a Canadian Destroyer off the apron through the table, which was an obviously sick spot. That got a 29 Dustin then hit two crossroads immediately after that and didn't cover for no good reason. Then he hit a ti- or He went for a Tiger driver. Sammy escaped. They traded pinning combinations, with Sammy eventually trapping Dustin for the win. Sammy got 30 seconds to celebrate when, you guessed it, AEW did an attack with Daniel Garcia. So Sammy doesn't win with his finisher early, survives a destroyer into a table, and two crossroads when Dustin doesn't cover. Then... They can't let him beat a 52-year-old Dustin Rhodes with anything more than a pinning combination. He can't hit his finisher. He can't lateral press, pin him one, two, three, hook the leg. It has to be a pinning combination for some reason. And then he wins the interim TNT title, which should be a big deal. He won the title back that he just lost. And they cut short a celebration for a Garcia attack. Oh yeah. And that's all not to mention that Sammy totally stopped selling the knee over the final third of the match. I mean, there were individual moves in here that were really good. I saw a lot of people praising this match, but I think anyone praising this match is ignoring all of those things I just pointed out that were legitimate problems to me. As far as AEW doing an interim title, I would have liked the idea a little bit more if the winner was not obvious. So when they do it in boxing and MMA, those are obviously real sports. Anything can happen in an interim title match. In wrestling... The winner is completely obvious when you have one of the competitors as someone who is going to be in the original match. So you think about like when NXT had to do an interim cruiserweight championship tournament, right? It was a, or when they had to crown a new champion, they did a tournament because the whole goal is you it shouldn't have been obvious who the person was going to be who won it. And I actually think if if, I, if memory serves, I think they subverted expectations the way that tournament unfolded. And ultimately, I think it was Santos Escobar, at the time, El Hijo del Fantasma, came out on top. Here, you have the guy who was challenging Cody for the title, or was going to challenge Cody in the match. You know he's going to win. So now they, in kayfabe, took the title off of Sammy, now gave him a title back, and now presumably, because he's going to get a rematch with Cody, he's going to lose the interim title to Cody. So not only is he going to lose to Cody twice, he's going to lose two titles to Cody. So it's just something for AEW to really consider when they book interim stuff in the future. I love the idea of interim, having interim champions when someone can't compete. You look at WWE right now, Shinsuke Nakamura is injured. If you don't want to strip them of the title, they should have done a you know six-way match or a five-way match, crown an interim intercontinental champion. Then you do a ladder match for the titles and the winner is the real intercontinental champion. It's in, It's a storyline as old as time. The way they did it here... It was just a little strange. So that's my take on that. But but this, there's more to come here because this flows into like three other different segments across the last two shows. So on Rampage, the main event was Eddie Kingston, Santana and Ortiz versus 2.0 and Daniel Garcia in like a no rules, no DQ match. The brawl started backstage. There were planned suplexes on both ends of the ring. Santana and Ortiz did an awesome assisted rolling cutter. Santana nearly slipped, but hit a frog splash with the fall broken. Garcia hit Kingston with the ring bell for a 2.8 count somehow. Then the heels suplexed him through a table. Santana and Ortiz had a really nice rally of moves and they got a clean win. And you knew what was next. Of course, a post-match attack. 2.0 taped Eddie Kingston's arms onto the ropes and beat on him. And then Chris Jericho made the save and didn't touch anyone as they all scampered. This happens two to three times a show. Uh, the match that I just talked about was the best part of Rampage by a mile. I've been critical of this storyline, and I'm about to be critical of the storyline in a moment. But even though the matches that preceded this weren't anything, this one was fun as hell. Santana and Ortiz have been long overdue for a push. It really now needs to come sooner than later, and they are front and center in this Jericho-Kingston 2.0-Daniel Garcia mishmash they have going on. This was a really good showing with everything except the typical post-match attack, which is just becoming a total eye roll at this point, but I went 3.5 stars in a B. This was immensely entertaining. On Dynamite, Chris Jericho cut a promo about being named 2021's Best Faction by PWI. He told 2.0 to stay out of Sammy's TNT title match or he would deal with them. Kingston interrupted the promo, blamed Jericho for holding Santana and Ortiz back. Jericho told Kingston he'd kick his ass if he got involved and literally said, go fuck yourself to him by using GFY as an abbreviation. The Jericho-Kingston confrontation with Santana and Ortiz, that was hot. That's a really good storyline. I like it. But the GFY, it was so forced. It's like they're, It's like Jericho's actively trying to be edgy when he didn't need to be. The segment was great as it was. Just kind of let it go. Uh, and then the match, which main event of the show, Sammy Guevara against Daniel Garcia for the interim TNT title, both guys, Kingston and Jericho, ended up ringside. So this got 12 minutes. The final 12 minutes, it was the main event. Guevara did a sick double springboard cannonball outside. He hit a spike, back Garcia, I'm sorry, came back, hit a spike backdrop for a near fall, countered a GTH into a sharpshooter. Sammy then hit a really ugly crossroads for a near fall. Garcia countered the springboard cutter into a rear naked choke, into a bulldog choke, into a pile driver for another near fall in a really cool sequence. 2.0 jumped Kingston and then Jericho before the match was over. Sammy eventually ran Garcia into Matt Lee on the ring apron and then hit the GTH for the one, two, three. It was a great match with a finish that was again muted because of a run-in distraction. If it's not after the match, it's right before the end of the match or it's in the middle of the match as a reason to go to commercial and then come back. It's one of the one of the three with AEW and it happens, it feels like it happens in 80% of the matches at this point. 2.0 attacked Sammy after the bell and yes, Jericho and then Kingston made the save. This time Jericho actually got to hit them with his bat. Then Jericho and Kingston argued, I guess because Kingston wants to be the one to beat the shit out of 2.0 and he's mad that Jericho is. The whole thing is, it's really kind of convoluted and it's the same thing week after week, the Santana and Ortiz element, that was interesting. And we know Kingston likes to get involved in other people's business with wrestlers who he believes are his friends or should be his friends over another person's friends, right? We saw it with Death Triangle, it's a great example. Jericho-Kingston as a feud and match It's an incredible idea. I'm just not sure if AEW can stretch that out for eight more weeks because it's definitely pay-per-view caliber and not something I think that they would want to do on Dynamite. And again, I hated that Sammy won another title match, even though this was a retention, didn't even get to celebrate. They did a title presentation and the guy, David Crockett, got rushed out of the ring because there was an attack five seconds after the guy touched the title. I went 3.5 and a B for the match. It definitely could have been better with more time, but it just never got the time and it never got there. On Rampage, Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter fought Ruby Soho and Rio. The Heels double teamed Rio. Ruby got tossed outside. There was a terribly set up spot where Hayter accidentally punched Baker with Rio rolling up Hayter for the win. It was really not a great match considering the talent level of the women. It seems like they're building to a baker Hader split sooner than later. And you're gonna hear more about that in a moment, but there's been teases about it for months. So then on Battle of the Belts, the Women's Championship was on the line, Britt Baker against Rio. Rio took out Baker, then ran up a table held at an angle by Hater outside to kick her. Rio hit a 619 for a near fall. Then Baker escaped a submission and Rebel shielded her before eating a coup de gras literally to her ass. It was into her ass. Uh, Baker caught Rio with a ripcord forearm and an air raid crash for a flat two. Baker countered a dragon suplex, but Rio escaped two lockjaw attempts. Baker hit a stomp for a 2.5. The referee then ejected Rebel when Hader tried to hand Baker the title. Baker and Hader then argued with Rio catching Baker with a crucifix bomb and a Northern Lights suplex for a false finish. Baker hit another stomp for a 2.9 and then the lockjaw for the win. Easily the match of the night for Battle of the Belts didn't even really come close. It started really slow, but the last seven minutes were awesome. As I've said before, Baker is basically as good as her opponent and Rio is damn good. I was between 3.75 stars and a B, four stars and an A for this. I'm leaning a little bit more now that I'm thinking about it towards 3.75 and a B. Hater really seems like either she's going to be the Revolution feud or the catalyst for Baker dropping the title at Revolution, with them maybe feuding closer to the middle of the year. I have to believe it's one or the other at this point. And largely, I feel that way because Baker's doing a good job as champion. But it is starting to get repetitive, and AEW, I think, may have noticed that, and they tried to freshen her up a little bit, which we will talk about in a moment. On Rampage, we had Adam Cole fight Jake Atlas. Cole caught Atlas flying with a mid-air backstabber. Atlas hit a tope suicida and a missile dropkick for a near fall. Atlas springboarded off the top rope but landed badly, grabbed his knee as Cole hit a super kick. Cole then tried a Panama Sunrise before realizing that Atlas was legitimately hurt, He put him in a very, very light and safe, careful knee bar and yelled for him to tap. Red Dragon came down and they were going to attack when best friends came out to chase the heels out of the ring without fighting, as per usual in a post-match. Fun, well-wrestled match, obviously didn't end as planned. The only real takeaway is that I hope Atlas recovers soon, because that's all that we could really take out of this. It was tough that he got another big break, this time in AEW, and got hurt in his first TV match. I believe he had one or two dark matches, but this was his first one on TV. The guy's talented in the ring. I continue to wonder whether there's more to him. Like, the idea is that he has charisma, but I don't know that he actually does. And I don't know how he latches on and becomes something bigger. I just, I don't know. But right now, what's most important is he heals up, then he gets better. Really, really bad break. Um, And it was a good match up until that happened. No question about it. On Dynamite, uh, Cole opened the show. Uh, with Red Dragon in the ring, talking about being undefeated, Red Dragon being the best tag team in the world, and it being a new era. Get it? The Young Bucks came out with Animus. Uh, both teams said their goal was the AEW tag team titles. Cole said healthy competition makes them the best faction in the world. Best Friends came out. Cole antagonized Orange Cassidy. They all brawled. Cole low-blowed him. So Chris Statlander stood between them and, and stood stared down Cole. So that meant Britt Baker was going to run down and stomp Statlander, and then hold Orange's head for a super kick and a last shot from Cole. Cole then pointed for a kiss uh, from the Bucks on his cheeks, but instead Britt leaned in, kissed him on the lips. Later, there was a tape deal backstage with Cole and Baker challenging uh, Statlander and Orange for a mixed tag team match. Really strong start to the show. It's become obvious over the last two months that AEW, it's changing its booking and the way it segments shows a little bit. And it's doing a lot more of what many people may call WWE segments, Uh, in-ring promos, confrontations, long deals without wrestling to start the show. Following it up with another promo later, as they did in the MJF segment, that's another indication that they're moving towards that area a little bit. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, obviously, but it is notable. One reason it could be happening is because they have more people than ever who can actually carry a promo segment on the mic, bringing Danielson, Cole, Uh, obviously Punk, MJF, all those guys can legitimately talk. So if they're going to be in a major program, starting the show with them and letting them talk to start the show and bring people in, it's a pretty damn good idea. And again, it's one of the things that WWE does frequently. I also thought this was a really smart way to kickstart a Baker-Statlander feud. She could definitely be the pay-per-view opponent, no question. She could also be an intermediate challenger. The pairing with Cole on screen, it's freshening Baker up a bit. Like I said, she's gotten pretty stale. Now, I'm not sure if they're going to go deeper than one mixed tag team match next week. If they do, that'll be something to watch. But for right now, all of this worked for me, top to bottom. You go, you guys know I'm not necessarily the biggest Young Buck fans, but even them involved in this whole thing makes complete sense, and I really liked it. On Dynamite, we had Hikaru Shida against Serena Deeb. Shida was attacked with a kendo stick to the knee before the bell, and Deeb completely worked the knee with blows and submissions she got zero offense legit until the referee called for the match. I think it was a medical stoppage and not a submission, but either way, Deeb won, and now their series is two and two. Deeb grabbed the kendo stick and absolutely destroyed Sheeta's knee with it like a dozen times after the bell. And I was mixed about this whole thing. On its own, I love a badass beatdown, but this was already their fourth match, which means we're definitely getting a fifth. Now, if you want to talk about an absurd amount of rematches, five rematches is an absurd number. My guess is they did this to write Shida off. Maybe she's going back to Japan for a couple months. They can have her return a couple weeks, let's say, before Revolution. Uh, since there's eight weeks, she could go back for six weeks, let's say, come back. They could have a match at Revolution, or she could return on the Dynamite after Revolution, and they could start a big, you know, restart their feud and have a main event match on television if they actually want to do another women's main event match. All of that would make sense. However. If Sheeta comes back in like two weeks and is totally fine with the knee, it's going to be absolutely ridiculous. Now, because they're four matches deep, it also creates an opportunity for this fifth match to be special. And that's what I'd like to see from here. So if you do it at Revolution or you do it on a Dynamite and maybe you do a 30-minute Iron Woman match or something like that, then I'm all in because that would absolutely bang. Anything less than something like that, and it's really going to feel exactly like I said, just repetitive and largely unnecessary, but I think they're going to deliver on it. We will have to wait and see. On Battle of the Belts, there was an FTW title match, Ricky Starks against Matt Seidel. Starks cut a promo on Rampage about the FTW title being added to Battle of the Belts. Basically, they didn't have enough title matches for a show with that name, so they threw it on there. The quick storyline is that he wanted to beat Seidel faster than Dante Martin did. This was a whole match of counters and reversals. Seidel hit Lightning Spiral for what looked like a three for real, but was ruled a near fall. Then he hit a Meteora, but they were so far from the ropes that Seidel had to push Stark's leg with his own body weight onto the bottom rope. Starks came back with a dark type of spear and then Rochambeau for the win to retain his title. Guess what, folks? Team Taz attacked Seidel in the post-match. Lee Moriarty made a save. He got killed. Then Dante attacked and got over Powerhouse Hobbs. Obvious booking, given it was last minute. It was fun. Again, the post-match attack, very repetitive. I don't really have much else to add. On Dynamite, we had Martin and Hobbs. Martin got thrown outside and attacked by Starks. Dante hit a missile dropkick, but Hobbs did a press kickout and then a tornado. Jay Lethal randomly came down and stopped further interference from Starks. And Martin then hit the nosedive for the win. Hey, at least we didn't get a post-match attack this time, but we did get a run in late in the match, as we've already talked about earlier. This was a rough match though, because it was very similar to the match that preceded it, which was Wardlow and CM Punk with a powerhouse beating the shit out of a guy, being a slow match, and then that face in an underdog role, at least in the match, coming from behind at the very end and getting the win. It was strange that they scheduled those back-to-back. Also, this would have been a great spot for Hobbs to actually get a win, but he didn't. And I guess they did that just because they seemed to favor Dante. So we got two huge dudes with very similar matches, both losing consecutively, despite totally dominating their opponents. You know, you got to think things through a little bit better uh, from a Tony Khan perspective. If you're going to be booking the show that way, take this match, put it later in the show, save it for Rampage, do something like that. On Dynamite, uh, Christian Cage spoke for Jurassic Express, saying they wished Ray Phoenix a speedy recovery and were ready to step up against competition. So the Dark Order guys stepped up to fight them, and they I guess they're having a match on Rampage. It's kind of a weird segment, but that match would probably kick ass uh, on Friday. So then we got Penta El Cerro Miedo against Matt Hardy. This was a hometown match for Hardy, given they were in North Carolina. He cut a promo saying he'd put Penta in the hospital with Phoenix. They exchanged Cerro Miedo and Delete Chance. Penta ate a side effect on the apron. Hardy missed a moonsault, and Penta hit Fear Factor for the win. And that's it. Not much to the match. Penta grabbed a mic after the match and said he would make Malachi Black show some respect. The lights went out. Black appeared and attacked. The Varsity Blondes and Julia Hart made the save as Black laughed kind of while he was being beaten by all three of them. The lights went out again, and Brody King debuted to take out all three dudes by himself. Black and King, they've long been friends and partners, Uh, with Ring of Honor ending all those contracts recently. It was only a matter of time before we saw Brody King there. It was also teased in those House of Black vignettes, but it was still pretty exciting. They look great together, and I do hope House of Black is more of a faction than just a tag team, given it has its own name. Kings of the Black Throne, which is a great name, and I believe Excalibur referenced it on broadcast. Either way, it was a great moment and a really good debut for Brody King. Great to see him in AEW. That's going to be a lot of fun. On Dynamite, Pac also had a video package where he was blinded. He had a blindfold on, and he was rubbing a tarot card with the eyes poked out, saying his vision had never been so clear. And obviously, it's clearly related to the House of Black stuff. So the question really is, is it going to be part of it? or is he going to be fighting against them? And that for now still remains to be seen. We'll have to wait and find out. On Rampage, Andrade Al-Idolo said he didn't understand why Darby Allen worked for Sting. So Tony Schiavone had to explain that he didn't work for Sting. Andrade asked Sting to name his price for Darby to be his assistant. That was really weird. I guess it's meant to be disrespectful, but again, just weird. Like, why would he want him to be his assistant? Why is that what they're going with? I don't know. Very, very strange. Later backstage on Dynamite, Hardy said that he needed to change his focus. So Andrade walked up, called them both businessmen, and said we should talk. And that was it. So now something's happening with Darby and Sting, and now something's happening with Matt Hardy. And then on Dynamite, there was a match, the Acclaimed versus Bear Country. Max Castor had a string of like four good raps recently, by the way, but it's all been downhill since then. He called out Darby and Sting at the end of his promo. The Acclaimed then won a short match with a mic drop. Then, you guessed it, a post-match attack. Darby hit a tope suicida with a skateboard. Sting beat down Anthony Bowens and hit a Scorpion death drop on Caster. And that was the whole segment. The Acclaimed calling out Darby and Sting just days after Andrade did, none of it made sense. Neither had a reason for doing so. And with Andrade now talking to Hardy, it's almost as if the brief Darby and Sting thing was dropped and changed. It's just hard to make sense of the entire thing. I have no idea what's happening with any of them. And with Andrade, almost every time he speaks, unless unless it's truly like a focused situation, every time he speaks, I I don't understand what his booking is. Like, I, I don't know what they're trying to do with him. And it's just exceptionally strange. So yeah, that's, that's about it with all that. On Dynamite, Arn Anderson was talking to his son and Lee Johnson about them being in horseman country, Tully Blanchard came up and told Arn to join them and really experience what a horseman was like again if he was with a FTR. FTR then challenged Brock and Lee. It was really cool to see Arn and Tully interact, but that was really all I had for this entire segment. Over on Rampage, Hook fought Aaron Solo. Solo got some offense early, but Hook hit his high collar suplex, a bunch of forearms, and red rubber for the win. QT Marshall yelled at him after, and he ate the exact same suplex. Look, Hook's debut, it continues to be impressive. Absolutely no doubt about it. I want to see him in a more extensive match at this point. And the question's going to be, what does that look like and when's it going to happen? But I think he's been on like three straight rampages. So we will see it. It seems like they're moving pretty quickly with him and uh, they believe in him. So there you go. So that was this week in AEW. Like I said, really up and down. Lots of things that seem to move storylines forward for Revolution. But I do look at the potential revolution card right now. And especially compared to the last two AEW pay-per-views, I'm really sitting here thinking like, is this going to be anywhere near as strong as some of those last shows? Now, maybe there's going to be some some debuts, uh, whether at the pay-per-view or before the pay-per-view from all these WWE releases that are going to be coming up sooner than later. Maybe there's going to be some debuts and and fun things and what moments and whatever that are going to surprise us and amp up the excitement. But right now, at least in terms of revolution, I mean, they got eight weeks, so they got plenty of time, but I'm not that excited at what I'm seeing, you know, CM Punk and Darby Allen and Eddie Kingston and Jericho, if both of those happen, yeah, damn good match is awesome, yeah, I, but again, not sure what's going to happen with the TNT title, if it's even defended on there, the AEW World Championship, the Women's Championship picture, the tag team picture right now, it's all very, very murky, so AEW has plenty of time, but it it was a very for me, what I would call a strange week, especially given they had four hours of programming with Battle of the Belts. So with AEW wrapped up, let's move to NXT and let's go right to the main event. We had AJ Styles versus Grayson Waller. Styles said he wants to win the Royal Rumble and main event WrestleMania, but his journey back starts with beating Waller. So Waller, he didn't wear gloves after Styles accused him of copying him. I think it was last week. And the crowd was understandably, but still hyped as hell for this. Waller did a really cool move where he ran the rope, slid under the bottom rope, clothesline Styles outside all in one motion. Styles did a basement forearm and a neck breaker over his knee for a near fall. Waller came back with a rolling forearm and his between the legs elbow drop for another near fall. I maintain it's stupid for a guy wearing boxing gear to do basketball moves, but apparently no one's listening to me when I say that. Styles got the calf crusher, but Waller eventually found the ropes and hit a really cool sit down power bomb out of a fireman's carry for a 2.5. Waller failed trying a Styles Clash, then dodged a Phenomenal Forearm and hit a Rolling Stunner for a near fall. Waller escaped a Styles Clash and ate a Pele kick plus a Brain Buster. Then he hit a clean Phenomenal Forearm, Styles, for the 1-2-3 in 14 minutes. Styles said he loved kicking Waller's ass, and he's good, but he's not yet phenomenal. Then he introduced LA Knight, who got a really nice pop, tossed Waller around the ring, and that ended the show. Styles and Knight then had like a mini stare down, but then dapped each other up, hugged, and they both celebrated. This was a tremendous match and it was a perfectly booked segment. Styles made Waller look like an absolute stud and Waller proved he can hang with one of the best in the world. He also gave Knight some Rob Styles. So there's really no doubt and I've said it on this show I think a number of times now. Grayson Waller legitimately has it. The question's gonna be what do they develop that it into, right? He can't keep just the Type of gimmick look that he has right now, as he develops over time, and I hope he gets time to develop, and he's not rushed up just because he is a prodigy and he seems to be pretty damn good. If, as long as he gets the time, he should develop into a star. As far as I'm concerned, he's a made man after this. He's a guy who you look at, you say, okay, what is NXT 2.0 producing? Braun Breaker, absolutely. Carmelo Hayes, absolutely. Grayson Waller, absolutely. Those are three guys that are absolute no-brainers. You can tell it's working. Everyone else, most other people at least, still a work in progress. I had also been wondering where LA Knight went. So it was really good to see him back. And I'm glad he's still a face because that is working so much better than when he was a heel. It's just night and day. No pun intended. Overall, this ended up being a very valuable program for Waller. Styles now gets to move out of NXT after a couple weeks. Back over to WWE full time to the Rumble. Oh yeah, match grade. Uh, I'm just like the women's match on uh, Dynamite or on uh, I guess Battle of the Belts it was. I'm between a 3.75 B plus and four stars A minus. I'm right on the edge. I'll say 3.75 B plus, but if you felt it was an A match then or an A minus match, I wouldn't disagree with you. Braun Breaker opened NXT by putting over Tommaso Ciampa and the brand promising to outwork everyone else. He mentioned his dad. He never said the name Rick Steiner. As he was walking out from his promo, it was very short, very similar to Hangman Page's promo, actually. Neither of them that great. Uh, as he was walking out, Legado del Fantasma made their entrance. They did a mini stare down, I guess it would call it. Uh, what The biggest success out of this entire thing is even though the promo wasn't great, it did reestablish Braun as a babyface. Whereas in the Champa match, you could kind of say he was on the heel side. Because everyone wanted Champion to win. But it did reset him as a babyface, and it also set the tone for his title reign. Basically, this guy's going to be in a lot of matches, and he's going to beat a lot of people. The question is who is going to beat Braun Breaker? And I think I might have an answer to that. Keep on listening. Uh, Santos Escobar fought Zion Quinn, and the stipulation in this match was the winner would leave with Electro Lopez, who I thought was going to watch from a pedestal. And eventually, she made her way down to ringside. Escobar was dominating when Lopez prevented him from running Quinn into a ring post. She nodded to him. Then when she turned around, when uh, Quinn turned around, I should say, she kicked him right in the taint and nuts. Uh, Escobar hit a phantom driver and got the win in 11 minutes. It was the right booking technically, but since Escobar largely had the upper hand, it didn't look like he needed her help to win. And the finish leaves the door open for this to continue when it really needs to end. It's already gone on way too long. Hopefully they end it maybe with the Braun Breaker stare down. They're thinking about making Escobar the challenger or his first challenger as the new champion. As I've said, Escobar, all of Legado del Fantasma, they're ready for the main roster. They do not need to be there anymore. And I actually think they would do well on the main roster because they need tag teams and they need faces who can talk and Escobar... And when I say faces, I mean humans, not necessarily a baby face. They need people who can talk. And Escobar can do that. So, you know, as long as the stuff with Quinn is over, I'm okay with it. If this leads to another match, it's just going to be super repetitive. And I'm going to be really, really frustrated with it. Because also, if it does lead to another match, the assumption is Zion Quinn would win. And Zion Quinn should not be beating Santos Escobar. So I'm not going to get upset about it before it happens, but that's where I stand on it right now. Mandy Rose had a bikini photo shoot video package. She bragged about her New Year's evil win and making the women's championship look hot. There was also a toxic attraction vignette about people being thirsty for them. And that vignette ended with Mandy in a bikini again. So look, I have no problem with Mandy's gimmick. I am far from a prude, you guys know that. I also have no problem with people using sex appeal in wrestling. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it at all. So the problem with it, though, is that Mandy's not good in the ring. And basically her entire push is only about her looks. It's not even about her being manipulative and getting into people's heads. Like there's so many other ways you can use attractiveness and good looks to fill out a character, but it's so base level. Others show off their attractiveness, but it's nowhere near as blatant. And that's my problem with the entire thing. It's just, it feels as forced as it possibly could be. And it doesn't really need to be. They could figure out a way to be creative and use it as the gimmick, but be a little bit more subtle in doing so or have layers to it rather than just, I'm hot, you're jealous of me. Like how many freaking times has WWE done a female I'm hot, you're jealous of me gimmick? It's like, I don't know, 50 times over the last two decades. Later in the show, Kaylee Ray came across the photo shoot setup that Mandy had. She got angry that Mandy only shows up to take pictures and not defend her title or fight. So Kaylee Ray destroyed the entire set with her green bat. And yeah, look, I want more Kaylee Ray. And it seems like she's about to get a main event push. That's definitely the right direction. But she needs some damn matches to build her up in front of the crowd. She's only had like two matches. And I think one was a single that she won. And the other one she lost was the War Games match. So Actually, now that I think about it, they won the war Games match, but it wasn't a singles win, is my point. She is not being pushed strong enough as a single woman with wins over other individuals to then go and challenge for a title. It feels like they're just throwing her into it. Now, we know she deserves it because she is, I think, the longest reigning NXT UK women's champion ever, but the US crowd and certainly people who watch on USA Network definitely don't know that. So you got to build up this woman. You can't just throw her into it. But, like I said, it's definitely the right direction for her. Just let her wrestle a few times. That's all. Imperium had a vignette about its values and people in America being fat, lazy, and distracted, not understanding any of that or why they do it. Walter was involved in the entire vignette. And there were reports last week that he's officially done with NXT UK and will be in the United States for now. That is obviously great news. And all three of these guys should have been on the main roster yesterday. But, If Walter is going to be stuck in NXT, at least for a period of time, they have a ready-made person to beat Braun Breaker for the NXT Championship. The question is, do they actually do it? And if so, when do they do it? After how long of a title reign? I could totally see it being WrestleMania weekend. I doubt they'll have a NXT special event, but maybe on that Tuesday show or maybe the Tuesday following WrestleMania, it would be really, really cool if we got Walter brawn breaker, because, ho, 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 reinforce the ring post on that. Uh-huh. Reinforce the ring post. The beat's going to be tonight, gentlemen. Don't worry about the shirt. Don't worry about the meat inside the shirt. That would be an absolutely crazy match if we got that. So, man, I mean, we talked about big meaty moments of the year and how WWE's already done a couple that probably won't be surpassed. We have Bobby Lashley and Brock Lesnar coming up. Walter Braun Breaker, it's not Bobby Lashley Lesnar. I'm not saying it's on the same level, but man, it would be big and medium. That's all I'm saying. It would be pretty awesome. Uh, Pete Dunne fought Tony D'Angelo in a crowbar on a pole match. D'Angelo hit an exploder suplex and then a cool vertical suplex over a barricade into a Michinoku driver. He grabbed the crowbar first, but neither of them landed a shot. D'Angelo caught Dunn with a neckbreaker using the crowbar for a near fall. He tried again and Dunn countered and put the crowbar into his mouth during an STF. An illegal chair was brought in because it's only a crowbar. That was the only weapon that you could use. It wound up on the floor and D'Angelo speared Dunn onto it and it wasn't purposeful. So it wasn't a DQ. Then he threw him into the opposite corner where Dunn's head was supposed to hit the pole, but didn't really. And then Tony D slammed him with the crowbar in a really cool spot. Like it looked like he actually hit him with the crowbar. He did a good job for the win. D'Angelo's good in the ring. Dunn is obviously great in the ring. But the gimmick of the match with the crowbar, it made it really clunky in the second half. And while I get the crowbar and the mafia shit, I know it's Tony's gimmick, it really sucked to see Dunn lose here, even though the weapon actually being used in the finish is a nice surprise. It's not always the case in matches like this. Dunn apparently has been doing tryout matches on the main roster. So maybe there's a scenario where he's being written off and he's gonna debut at the Royal Rumble to move up. If they did that, that would at least make sense. But this under-delivered for me, even though it got nearly 15 minutes, we have seen them do better because they had a regular wrestling match. That was better than this. I think I gave it like 3.5 stars. So this one, I went three stars and a B minus. Fully entertaining, just not the same wrestling quality that we know that both of them can do together. We've seen it. Cameron Grimes uh, fought Damon Kemp. Kemp made his NXT debut. He's been on 205 Live before, but first time on NXT. And this is Bobby Stevenson, Gable's brother. And they actually mentioned Gable during the match and didn't say that they were related, which is just absolutely the height of absurdity to do that and then not mention that they're actually related. So crazy to do that. Anyway, uh, Malcolm Bivens watched the match for obvious reasons, scouting Kemp. Grimes hit a one-legged cave for the win in a couple of minutes. Kemp held his own and he didn't really look out of place despite only being in NXT for a few months, it seems like Grimes is getting a push, maybe as a North American title challenger, and that became way more clear about one segment later. Because we had Carmelo Hayes, who had a championship celebration, he poured one out for Roderick Strong's cruiserweight title reign, talked some shit, Melo didn't really say anything, but the confidence and charisma, totally on point, even Trick Williams had a funny moment as he normally does, they stared down Styles as he made his entrance for the main event match, and then later, when they went to pick up their Bentley outside, Grimes was sitting on it, saying he was ready to go after the North American Championship. Now, I didn't know the case when I said that a moment ago about Grimes, but it made a ton of sense. And that's obviously going to be a great feud when they fight, whatever the match is. That's going to be a lot of fun as well. We had Joe Gacy and Harland against Malik Blade and Edris Onofe. Uh, Idris Onofe, I'm sorry. Uh, Gacy thanked NXT for letting them be in a play in match for the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. The faces planned to shock the world, and they had the advantage until Harlan tagged him. Harlan then got DQ'd for not listening to the referee's five count, so he stared down the referee in the corner. This whole thing lasted four minutes. It was an absolute waste of time. The Harlan gimmick? It's just not working at all at this point. I used the wrong sound drop. It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. It just... I, I cannot see how Harland gets over. They got a reverse course with this somehow. Anofe was clearly the star of this foursome. As I've said before, the guy has a great look, already a good moveset, and a ton of charisma. Uh, Casey Canizzaro, Caden Carter, and Amari Miller fought Indy Hartwell, Persia Prata, and Wendy Chu. The faces all did some high-risk moves with Casey hitting a torneo. Chu brought a body pillow to the ring, and she slept in between the ropes at some point during the match, She wore pajamas and slippers. Chu yawned and avoided a clothesline. That woke her up. Then she curled up in the ring as a decoy. The Aussies combined for a fireman's carry X-Factor and a springboard elbow drop for the win. I have to say, and look, you guys may be completely surprised by this. I am all in on the Wendy Chu gimmick. It's got some orange Cassidy elements. And the whole idea of the pillow, the pajamas, and the slippers, it just completely works for me, like in every way. We've barely got to see her wrestle in NXT over the years, but she worked really well in the limited time she had here. I'm all about it. I hope they give her a full chance to succeed. This is a potential main roster gimmick. I don't know if, when, or how it might happen, but holy shit, was I entertained by Wendy Chu? That was a good one, yeah. MSK saw the Dusty Cup and got extremely excited about the tournament and their chances to win. Dakota Kai interrupted and looked at it affectionately, also saying nothing builds friendships better than success, but they didn't want to hear from her because all of her friendships obviously have failed. This was a fun little tie-in there with Dakota. Good segment, nothing special. Solo so Sokoa fought Boa. Sokoa said he'd beat the shit out of whichever version of Boa showed up. He came to the ring without the makeup. They had a nice brawl and fought to a count out as they continued brawling into the loading dock area. Sokoa threw Boa over a uh, road case and then got hit in the face with fire as Boa stood up and appeared in his face paint. I obviously hate countouts, but there was at least a reason for this. And I like that they're developing a thorough, low-card storyline. So this is going to continue, obviously. We'll see what happens next. And then lastly, Vic Joseph announced early in the show that Von Wagner was suspended indefinitely and fined for attacking last week. At the end of the show... He announced that Wagner's suspension was over and his fine was paid, acting confused by the development. You guys know I'm not a Von Wagner fan. I have no idea what they're doing with this. I hope this does not have to do with Wagner when he appeared on SmackDown like two months ago and stood next to Adam Pearce. As long as this doesn't have to do that and this guy is not on the main roster, I'm fine with it. If somehow he is, what an absolute abject failure and disaster that would be. So that is it for NXT. Uh, It was a good show, you know? There were a couple moments that stood out. As I have been saying about NXT for the last few weeks, if you stopped watching this show, I'm not gonna tell you that you should turn it on and it's gonna, you know, entertain you and pop you the same way the old NXT did. It won't. But there are elements of the show every week that are good. You can see something kind of percolating there. And for me, that's exciting enough to keep watching it. If I wasn't doing the podcast, just like with Rampage, I feel the same way about Rampage. I would probably DVR the shows and fast forward things that didn't look important or people I didn't care about and focus on the good stuff. On this show, you're going to watch Styles and Waller. You're going to watch Braun Breaker's promo. You probably want to see the finish, at least, of Escobar and Quinn. You're going to want to see the Imperium promo. Dunan D'Angelo, Kemp making his debut. I mean, at least I would want to. Carmelo Hayes, you're going to tune in for and that's probably it, right? Everything else you could skip. But that's like 50% of the show. So I do you know, want to push people, if you stopped watching 2.0, go back, start with New Year's Evil, watch that episode in full, uh, watch, you know, and, and then DVR it and fast forward it from there and see if it entertains you. If it, if it doesn't, stop watching again. But if you're kind of right in that middle, I do think there's enough elements of the show to entertain that really make it worth watching from week to week, or again, at least DVRing and going through in some manner week to week so that is this week's edition uh, of the getting over wrestling podcast talking aew and nxt no special events coming up for the first time in a while for wwe nxt or aew so we are back to our normal schedule we will be back on tuesday talking all things wwe as the royal rumble inches closer and closer and then thursday next week we will be back to talk AEW and NXT. A reminder, of course, folks, as we get on the way out of here, that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about so please head on over to Apple Podcast and Spotify. Leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings help us immensely. And do not forget to head on over to Twitter and follow us at Getting Overcast. Vintage Chris Benigni will be back with us for the Tuesday WWE show. But once again, just talking solo for the Silver King himself. I'm going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.